0: Okay, have you ever, this is like an abrupt change. Have you ever done something kind for someone and they either didn't care or even maybe were a little critical? You ever done that? Wish you had done a little more, maybe a little nicer, a little bigger, something like that? What does that feel like? Hmm. we're in the middle of a series for those of you or a theme for those of you who are visitors we started this last year we looked at Leviticus and uh, I presented the idea that Leviticus is the primary theological book of the Old Testament and it gives us a blueprint of what's coming but a blueprint is not a building it's just a piece of paper and so in order for the blueprint to be turned into something you need a builder and that's what happened at Pentecost when the spirit came So Paul and Peter use language like we're a spiritual house, a spiritual building, a spiritual temple. All of that language is growing. So this building is being built. And so we started this during the pandemic. How many of you remember the pandemic, by the way? How many of you remember wearing masks? Yeah, I see you all smiling. You miss it, don't you? (laughs) <laughs> so we, we started it then, but we've been really taking kind of an in-depth look over the last year at what does this house look like that's being built? So this summer, we're focusing on—I couldn't figure out how to organize it around uh, grace, gifts, goodness, and I decided, oh, they're all kind of mixed together in the same. So I'm going to read to you a passage of, of what it's like not to be appreciated and you, most of you will have heard this story many times. This is out of Luke 17. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee, and he was going into a village as he was going. Ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance, and they called out to him in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. All 10 of them came back praising God. Wait, that's not what it says. You know the story, right? One of them, one, that's like 10% if I did my math right, one out of 10. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. By now, you've all heard enough sermons on the Samaritans. It's a Samaritan for crying out loud. And so Jesus said, huh, weren't all 10 cleansed? Where were the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to them, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Okay, so here we have an example of someone, well, a bunch of someone's. I don't know about you, but if I was miraculously cleansed of leprosy, I would like to think I would be falling down at his feet, saying, oh my gosh, look at this. And they just went on their way. They went on their way. Now, you're probably wondering why we're starting a sermon like this if we're focusing on goodness, because this is a critical part of the concept of grace. Today we're going to talk about grace, a church that is a good church. Last week we said it's characterized by empathy, and we've talked about empathy and what does it look like to be really, really concerned for the people that God brings across our path. Remember I asked you the story when you pull up and there's a, there's a person begging for food, uh, maybe a homeless person at the street corner at the stoplight, what are your thoughts You know, I ask this all the time in the classroom, and the standard answer I get is, well, there's a government program that could help them. You know, maybe you have the thought, if they only worked harder, let's give them a job. But do you ever have the thought that, oh, oh my, here's a person that for whatever reason feels the need to be stuck on this corner begging? Um, That's empathy. Empathy that's placing yourself in someone else's shoes. But empathy was not enough. We talked about the need to go further as a church and really, really reach out and help those people, the people that aren't as blessed as we are for whatever reason to be involved in their life. So today we're going to talk about grace, which raises the question, what is grace? And I've told you all along all summer that the studies that are coming out from the Churches that are, have fallen or collapsed or their senior pastors have been exposed. Um, there's common themes, and one of them in this toxicity, this church that's not uh, doing well, is the absence of grace. So what is grace? It's easy for us as Christians to talk about it. Most of you were raised, if you are raised in a Christian home, grace was part of the vocabulary, right? You have a sense at some level of what grace is. You receive something that you don't deserve, Okay. But grace is actually a lot more complex than that. And so this relates to this concept of what a good church looks like. You see, grace is captured within the bigger, the bigger bounds of giftedness. But here's what it looks like in the ancient world. Uh, you have the concept of patronage. So maybe I'm a high level, and one of you is underneath me, and I give you a gift. Reciprocity is demanded. What that means is you owe your loyalty to me and you're going to give me something back in return. It could be just your fidelity or your loyalty. If you don't, you know what? It's over with. So the whole, the whole Roman Empire was based on this structure of patronage, of giving gifts to people where they were expected to reciprocate and give something back normally in terms of loyalty. You don't ever violate that because you violate that, the person over you who gave you the gift has the power to do something about it. And so that's the context in which we are given a gift of grace. Okay? Is reciprocity part of the deal? Yeah, it is. It actually is. But the Bible, when God introduces this concept of grace, he makes a very significant and subtle change. It's not demanded. It's not demanded. But what we begin to see is that when you freely give a gift to somebody and they reciprocate, now you have a relationship. Failure to reciprocate, there's no relationship. None. And in those 10, Jesus only ended up with a relationship with one. The one that turned back. The other nine, we don't hear anything about them. They're gone. They're gone, and so reciprocity under this concept becomes very important. And you actually see it all through the scriptures. But it becomes a necessary element to develop this relationship. Listen to these very, very, very familiar words. You all know them. In fact, I don't need it. Ephesians two eight through ten. For by grace you've been saved through. Say it. Faith. And that not of yourselves, etc. It's a gift of God, so that no one can boast. You know the language. But when you get to verse 10, okay, 2, 8, 9 is talking about this gift of grace that God gives us, this gift of salvation. You've been saved. This eternal life that he blesses you with and all the many things that happen to you when you turn to Christ. Not only do you get the gift of eternal life, the the indwelling spirit, and all the things that go with that. You're given a spiritual gift. All these things happen, okay? But you know what verse 10 says? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has prepared ahead of time. You see, there's a reciprocity right there. you want to have a relationship with the Lord, then you begin to practice that reciprocity. You begin to start giving to others. You begin to give to them out of, your bounty, whatever that happens to be. It could be money, it could be it could be just you're simply there to care for them, to show up at a hospital if they need prayer, whatever it is that they need, you begin to reciprocate, and that's that connection, that's that linkage that is so critical in our relationship with the Lord. That's it right there. So God doesn't demand any thanks for freedom that you Christ has set you free, and you guess what? You have the freedom to be idiots. You really do. You know, we've talked about that many times. You have the freedom to be idiots. But if you really want to experience that deep, deep love for the Lord, that passion, then you begin to reciprocate with the gift that you have been given. John fourteen twenty one. Jesus says something very startling. Whoever has my commands and keeps them this is the one who loves me. Okay, now contrast that with Matthew 7. Lord, didn't we, uh, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And Jesus said, away from me. I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. Okay, now back to John 14. Whoever has my commands and keeps them, this is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me, he says, shall be loved by my father, and I too shall love them. And here's the most startling verse, phrase, and I will disclose myself to them. Okay, it's really popular in today's world, the whole spiritual quest, spiritual formation thing, I get all of it. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's described in different quarters of the church in different ways on how much time you spend alone in quiet times with the Lord, et cetera, et cetera, and prayer. But in John 14, he doesn't tie it to any of that. He ties it to obedience. Obedience. Why is that important? Obedience. When I finished my doctorate and defended my thesis, my, th- my dissertation was on... I don't think I've ever brought this up for our church, but my dissertation was on Paul's thinking on the role of community in the sanctifying and maturing process. So when I got done, it was a New Testament uh, dissertation, so all of my examiners were all New Testament wizards. And so they said, uh, at the very last thing they said, so you think a person needs the community of faith to grow to maturity? I said, sure, absolutely. Absolutely. They said, how would you defend that in about 60 seconds? Well, I just spent two hours defending it. Now you have to do it in, two, in, 30, in 60 seconds. And I said, how do you love one another if there's no one to love? How do you forgive one another if there's no one to forgive? How do you care for one another's burdens if there's no one's burdens to care for or carry? I mean, 57 one another's a Paul alone if you do nothing else. In fact, Be interesting to see if you can find any command in the New Testament that you can do alone. The implication for all of them is that we're in a relationship and we're living it out. And you see, Jesus understood that, and that's the secret to you want to really know the Lord? You really want to know the Lord? Prayer is important. Uh, Don't get me wrong. But he doesn't craft it in terms of prayer. He crafts it in terms of obedience. And here's what it looks like. You ever been around somebody who's not very forgiving? You ever seen that person? Let me see. They're just harsh and cold, right? They're not very forgiving. They don't understand forgiveness. Paul says in Ephesians that we forgive because we have already been forgiven, not because the person repents or apologizes or changes or transforms or does any of that. We forgive because it's the right thing to do because as a human, they are worthy Of that dignity. And so here's what it looks like somebody does something to you and you forgive them and they don't ever repent. They still don't like you. Somebody else does something to you and you forgive them. And guess what? They don't ever repent. Next time they see you, they're mean to you. Love your enemies. Somebody else does something to you and you forgive them, not because they repent, because it's the right thing to do. There comes a point in time in this process of forgiveness where your gaze slowly shifts upward and you say, is that what it was like to forgive me? Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was. That's why the cross is so important. It's at that point that you begin to sincerely appreciate what Jesus did for you at that point. So common today, you see it all over social media, the judgmental criticism, right? The condemnation, pointing out people's flaws. I see it. I make a mistake up here and say something that maybe I didn't mean to say. Maybe I didn't mean to say it, but somebody gets mad at me. And they get mad. That's not right what you said. And I said, do you have the same, I don't say this, this is what I think. Do you have the same level of energy for your own sin that you do for mine? Think about it. We're worth, and I, again, I got to be careful here because judgment is an essential part and we're going to get to judgment in a couple of weeks, okay? Judgment is necessary in a fallen world. So we're seeing these pastors fall and I'm seeing the so, the social media is just filled with hostility, hatred, and anger. anger. And I just want to say, I got to be careful because I don't want to lighten the burden of the person that has, the perpetrator who has sinned. I don't want to do that. They need judgment. They need grace. They need all that. But what about the person getting angry? Do you get mad at your own sin? I asked two weeks ago, how many of you have gotten angry in the last two weeks, and every hand went up. You submitted to being guilty of murder. According to Jesus' standard, and I've asked this question repeatedly, do you think Jesus was joking? No, you're all murderers. You are all adulterers. No one, no one can meet the standard of perfection that Jesus taught. No one. That's why the cross is absolutely critical. But we don't get so upset about our own sin. I can get really upset about your sin, but I don't get upset about my own sin when I got mad at somebody or when I lusted after a thing or a person or uh, or whatever. We don't have that same level of energy toward ourselves. That's behind to get that log out of your eye and realize that you're no different and you're no better. Okay, now we're moving into the realm of true Grace. You see what happens without gratitude? And, and if I'm going to show grace, I have to be careful here. It's not really my problem. If I show grace towards someone and they don't respond with gratitude, that moves toward entitlement. I deserve it. If grace is truly free, that's why reciprocity is so important. We show good to someone. Our benevolence committee wrestles with this all the time. When we show good to someone, if they show reciprocity, then that, that grace is true grace and a relationship gets developed. Thank you very much for taking care of me. What can I do to bless others? See how that works? If we don't show that type of gratitude, then that moves us toward toward indifference, entitlement, hostility, a sense of "I, I, I deserve it. And that's what the world is preaching right now. But that should not be part of the church. And one of the real challenges, to be very honest with you, is how do we cultivate this type of grace within all of us that are members of the church so that the world can look at us and say look how they help this person and that person reciprocated with gratitude and says i want to do the same who wouldn't want to be part of that if you spend any time on twitter or social media who wants to be part of that world okay who really does Think about John 14, 21. Whoever has my commands, Jesus said, and obeys them, this is the one who really loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them, and then I'll reveal myself to them. You see, I get to choose who I reveal myself to. You only see a part of me. You want to know what I'm like? I've said this many times. Go ask my wife or kids. They would love to tell you. (laughs) Okay? And you'll see the real me. You'll see the real me. And so, Jesus, you don't find Jesus by prayer, although that's important. What he's arguing here is you find Jesus through that reciprocal process. You have experienced forgiveness, so you forgive others. That's who he decides to disclose himself to. You've been blessed by Jesus, and so you bless others. That's who he decides to reveal himself to. Many, many years ago, I had a person come to me and say, you have a very passionate walk with the Lord, but I don't. How? How? What's the standard Christian answer? Read your Bible, pray more, and go to church. Oh, those are all good things. Don't hear me say they're not good things. They're necessary because you're building into a community, but it's far more, it's more complex and organic than that. And I said, well, let's, uh, let me ask you some questions. I'm not looking for the right or wrong answer. I just want to look for what the obstacle is. Sin's an obstacle to the Lord, and so you've got something going on. Are you uh, doing anything with any other adult that you shouldn't be doing? No? If your wife walked in, or her husband walked in and caught you, would they be? Would you be embarrassed? No. Okay. Are you? Uh, and I just went down to list of sins, and I got to greed, and I said, "Are you greedy?" And this person said, uh, "I don't know that. How would I know?" Okay. Pause. Probably once every four to five weeks, I always say this when we take the offering: "Thank you for your generosity, and I sincerely mean it. I'm so grateful for you." But every now and then, I add a caveat. Truthfully, I don't know if you're generous or not. You could be worth a billion bucks and only give us five. Okay? I don't know the answer to that. And I saw in my purview to f- try to figure out. Go look in the mirror and see if you're generous. From my perspective, you are, but only you and God can figure that one out. So I asked this person, Are you greedy? Now keep in mind, we've been going down this list of sins, and I said, Are you greedy? And the person said, I don't know. How would I know if I'm greedy? <laughs> and I said, Well. When you look at all the things God has given you and God's blessed you, do you think this way? Oh, they're mine and I have to protect them? Or do you think they're mine and I got to bless others with it? And this person said, oh, definitely the first. I said, okay. So I gave them a couple of verses on materialism, wealth. And I said, go home and just pray, okay? Just Just have the conversation with your spouse and pray. So the person came back about a month later and did this. I never will forget it in a coffee shop. Everybody looked, and he, this person goes, I'm guilty. I mean, I'm, I'm a... <laughs> totally forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> I'm greedy, really loud. And I just started laughing, and I said, well, praise Jesus, now you know. <laughs> no condemnation, no judgment. It was hysterical. And this person said, I got to learn how to be generous. So I've watched this person over many, many years now uh, work through me to give money to people. That's a bit of common thing. And one day I went up and said, how's your walk with the Lord? And this person said, it's growing deeper and deeper. I'm really enjoying this. See, the Lord discloses himself to those who responded faith. That's grace. That is true grace. Grace is a reciprocal proposition It is. The good works have already been prepared ahead of time, and the Lord gives you the choice and just sits back and says, let's see what they're going to do. Honestly, that's one of the struggles I have with prosperity gospel. They almost got it right. 2 Corinthians 9 is very clear that you cannot outgive the Lord, and he multiplies whatever seed you give. He multiplies it. And they stop there and say, so you can get wealthy. And the answer is no. It's so you can give more of it away. Okay? And they stop just short of the truth. But like all heresy, that just stop short. You get more and more so you can give it away. That's just one example. You see, grace is a reciprocal proposition. So I made a list here of some of the ways that in a church we can cultivate this concept of true grace. We have something to give. All of us do. We're blessed so we can bless others. It may not be money. It could be money. It could be something else. It could be wisdom to step in and say, hey, are you okay? Maybe it's to step into a marriage that's struggling and say, can I, uh, can I take you and your spouse out to lunch and see if, we can, if I can encourage you? I want your marriage to do well. Maybe that. We're willing to forgive. We forgive because we've been forgiven, not because the other person repents. That's why. Forgiveness is not an event. It's the decision not to hold somebody accountable, not to penalize them for something that they've done. And you know what? If you've been hurt by that person, that's not an event, trust me. Every time you look at them, that flares up. And it's that decision, a process, a lifestyle, a part of the heart over and over and over again where you say, I'm really not going to hold this person to account. That's why the Lord is so strong. Let me get vengeance, not you. Your job is to forgive. That's your job. That's a gift. How about are we cultivating gratitude? We don't want a church of entitlement. We don't want poor people coming to us that feel entitled. No, we want them to say, thank you. Thank you. Let me sacrifice for you. And what is it I desire? I desire that reciprocity. Thank you. Not because I want your approval, but because that's the enrichment that comes from true grace in relationships. And all of a sudden, we have a relationship starting to form. If we say, I deserve it, there's no relationship there. There's a lot of this. Back away. How about this? We equally love one another, and we grant space for the use of gifts. Everyone has been given a gift. Part of the leadership's responsibility of our church is to give you space to use your gift. Okay? I'm no better than you because I'm up here. I just have a gift of teaching that I love to share. One of the things I love doing in the developing nations of third-world countries that I go to, you know, what are they used to with missionaries? They're used to always us coming and helping, and so we must be better than them. It's really hilarious when you're sitting with a bunch of young students that are recently Hindus and say, picture what we're doing as the communion table, which we're about to celebrate in just a minute. Community table, we all come to the table equally. So I'm bringing you a gift that I received in my country called education, and I know you can't get it, so I'm going to bring it to you. Honestly, when I finished my doctorate, I didn't pay for it. I had a bunch of friends pay for it. I couldn't afford it. And so when I finished 23 years ago, I just said, Lord, maybe I could go to countries where they can't afford for me to come. Now, I'm not rich, so you're going to have to pay for it, which the Lord does. I have donors that help me every trip, you know, to pay for it. And I go where they can't afford for me to come. And I tell them that story. So somebody gave, bless me with their gift, and I'm blessing you with my gift. That's called education. And so what is it you're bringing to the table? We're equal, brothers and sisters. It's not this, it's this. What are you bringing? It's hilarious to watch them, some of them for the first time in their lives, sort that out and say, and be told, you're you're an equal brother or sister in the Lord. You have something to bring. What is it? I don't know. Do we create that kind of space in the church, that kind of attitude? How about learning to trust one another? You know, without trust, all this doesn't matter anyway. What about trust? And if trust is broken, which it often is, Are we willing to rebuild it? Trust is essential for grace to actually function well. If we don't have trust, here's what happens. Why are you giving me this gift? What are you trying to get? There's no trust there. Well, then grace, it doesn't work. Why give a gift if they don't care? Or if they're suspicious? And so what does it look like for us as a church to keep nipping, chipping away at, let's trust one another because we're equal brothers and sisters in the Lord. That produces unity. Here's another one. Are you allowed to fail in our church? I'm glad you feel that. He said yes. You see, a church that's really enriching itself and immersing itself in this true grace is that you get to fail. Listen to these words out of 1 John. Again, things that you've heard, verses you've heard many times, but we often highlight one part of the verse and not the other one. God is love. How many of you have heard that? Hopefully all of you. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. You don't hear that one so much. This is how his love is made complete in us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, none. Perfect love drives out fear. How many of you have heard that? So you've all heard portions of this verse. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with, what's next? Punishment. Fear has to do with punishment. So do we have, do we have, are we building a church where it's safe to fail? I'm not going to abandon you. How many times have you heard me say, no judgment, no condemnation, Luke 6? I might laugh at you because you got yourself in a real bind by doing something stupid, sinful, destructive, and hurtful. You see the difference? The, one thing I don't, the things I don't have control over, I can't convict you, redeem you, or transform you. The Holy Spirit can do that. I'm really only left with a couple options. One is to love you, and the other one is just be very patient and curious and let the Holy Spirit shove you in the ditch. When he shows you in the ditch, that's when I get to use my gifts and say, come on, let me help you out. Are we cultivating a, a grace-filled church where when you when you fail, we come running, we don't criticize. Let me help you. You see, what this all comes down to is pretty simple. It's learning together to trust the Holy Spirit. He transcends our abilities, Ephesians 3, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. He transcends our abilities, but he also transforms our inabilities. He steps in and helps us. So when you have a church that is free from fear and toxicity, none of us are better than anyone else. And we practice this grace where we give it to each other and then we respond, we reciprocate in two ways. Thank you, Lord, or thank you, person, whoever it is. And then we turn right around and repeat it ourselves. When we do that, that's a grace-filled church. You see, we do have freedom, freedom to love one another. Perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment, not love. So what kind of church are we? For you visitors, what kind of church do you have at home? you have a grace-filled church? Father, thank you for your goodness. Lord, we uh, once again... We say thank you. We count it such a privilege, such a deep, deep honor that you would reach out to us and enable us to be called your children to give us that privilege. Father, to give us that honor and then to want to use us and reflect your glory through us. We confess that it's not easy to understand all that. but we believe it's true. Help us to be a grace-filled church help us to be a church that when this county around us is feeling so insecure some are angry and hostile some are terrified lord some feel very unsafe whatever it is help us to be a church that when they look at us they just taste and see that you are good because they can look at us and taste and see that we are good In your son's name, we ask you to bless us in this way. Jesus, amen.